This is an ABC podcast. And hello, Tara DeLangraff with you on this Thursday lunchtime bringing you the country hour from the Esperance Studios in the state's southeast. Welcome to those who have been listening to the women's one-day cricket game between Australia and the West Indies. You'll be returning to the Junction Oval in Melbourne just after one o'clock. I don't know. Will the West Indies still be in play? Who knows? Shortly, though, we will catch up with a long-term farmer from the Esperance region, right where I am, to see how crops are looking, especially seeing as harvest has now started. Also on the program today, we'll hear about a state government construction project that is ahead of schedule. Yes, you heard me right, ahead of schedule. Uh, And it's a pretty important one for businesses in the north of our state, so some really good news there. And you might have heard on the Country Hour yesterday about lab brewed milk. Today, we'll get a response from Dairy Australia on the concept. First, though, a lot of people involved in Western Australia's commercial fishing industry are nervously waiting on details to be released on the South Coast Marine Park. But it sounds like commercial fishing operators in other states are also going through the exact same thing. Richard Hudson's been following this. Richard, tell us what the story is here. Yeah, well, the draft plan for the South Coast Marine Park in WA is due out very soon, as you know. And when it comes into effect next year, it's basically going to mean there'll be no more commercial fishing in areas of coastline all the way from Bremer Bay to the South Australian border. In a moment, you're going to get an update on the effect that uncertainty is having on WA's fishing industry. But Queensland's commercial fishing industry is in a very similar situation with the creation of marine conservation areas stretching all the way from the south around the Brisbane area, right up to the Great Barrier Reef, all the way up the north, and then even around the, the corner into the Gulf of Carpentaria. They're a little bit ahead of where we are, though, with some of those decision-making that's going on. David Bobberman is head of the Queensland Seafood Industry Association, and like his WA counterparts, he thinks they've been unfairly treated, especially when it comes to consultation. Uh, We were consulted by a press release by the Federal Minister for the Environment on the 5th of June telling us that our uh, livelihood was about to be uh, taken away from us effective 31 December this year. The consultation was zip, zero, zilch. Um, It's a political decision to appease UNESCO and the World Heritage Committee to help save, in inverted commas, the Great Barrier Reef from being put on the endangered list. They've used a chainsaw when a scalpel could have easily been used. Many of those fishermen now have to go and seek alternative employment in alternative towns. Ideally, if you have a look at history and, in fact, the Queensland's own Uh, policies. They should have done a cost-benefit analysis. They should have done a situation analysis. None of that was done. It was just purely a political decision to appease environmental groups. Also with me is the WA Fishing Industry Council's Daryl Hockey. Daryl, how does that make you feel when you hear that story? Because Queensland is just that bit further ahead than we are in WA. 
Yeah, it's really sobering, Richard, because we've just come out of a workshop which is in Perth at the moment and there are people from all over Australia and we're really getting a similar story in all states and territories and we are now seeing this pattern that we've had in WA which is the accumulative loss of access to fishing grounds. We, we're not against marine parks. We support sensible ones which are based on science and take into account human impacts. But what's happened is that these plans that have been drawn up on the south coast in particular, there's been some malicious intent from, from the influence of overseas environmental groups. Um, and whilst the environmental side of things has been looked at and the cultural heritage things have been taken into account with the Indigenous people, there's certainly no consideration whatsoever to the socio-economic impacts and the government is not listening to local people, which is really annoying and Dave in Queensland's had the, had the same issues. And as you'll see in the south coast, they're not talking to the local shire council, they're not talking to commercial fishers, they're not talking to recreational fishers. They've shut down the local community reference group because it didn't come up with the answers they want. And I can assure you that as an industry, we feel betrayed because what's happening is, is the government is, in effect, exporting um, our country's environmental obligations overseas because every kilo that you line up, lock up away here, which is kept out of the local market, means to replace it you've got to bring a kilo in from some illegal or unethical source overseas. And so, you know, when you look at the cumulative impact here, it's, it's enormous, particularly for people who live outside the metropolitan area. So where are we up to with the South Coast Marine Park? Because you haven't seen the draft plan yet, have you? Oh, we have seen the draft plan. Um, you know, there's, there's been one bouncing around the traps for about the last six months. Um, if you go and talk to the Environment Minister, he'll say that he's going to release it for statutory consultation within three weeks. He's been saying that for six months now. What we keep getting told, and this has been going on for the last two years, don't worry, no decisions have been made yet. Stay with the consultation process. We haven't made up our final decision yet. But we've known from the start that this has been a predetermined outcome. We went through that with the marine parks in the Kimberleys. And we went through that with the marine parks down around Nagari Capes, around the, you know, the, the southwest Capes. We've got fishermen who've been locked up from fishing in Nagari Capes in 2018 who haven't been compensated yet. The same up in the Kimberleys. We've got fishermen who don't know where they're going with their futures um, and they haven't been compensated or they haven't been able to move on. And we just think that it's pretty cold and heartless that our fishermen are exposed to this sort of mental torture, not knowing where they're going. And, and the government simply doesn't have any capacity to consult and, and, and make fair decisions. We saw that with the Cultural Heritage Act fiasco, the consultation fiasco, where in the end people in, in regional areas had to arc up and there were halls full of you know 700,000 people protesting. The government kept saying, well, no, we haven't made a mistake. Eventually they learnt. Well, that's what's happening at the moment in Western Australia. You mentioned compensation. Dave, were your fishing operators in Queensland compensated when these new marine parks were introduced? In, in relation to the reforms within the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park, we're told that the government has set aside $100 million for the um, consideration for the reforms. Uh, we believe that that is totally inadequate because in 2005, when the initial zoning of the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park occurred, the compensation paid at that point in time to effective businesses, which included upstream and downstream supply chain businesses, as well as commercial fishermen, exceeded $230 million. The initial budget was $10 million and ended up costing $230 million. 
So we think the $100 million is totally inadequate because of the reforms that have happened within the in industry. Um, that Within Queensland, a commercial fishing licence is what we call a property right. So for the government to resume a property right, um, it needs to pay fair and reasonable compensation. But we haven't heard anything about it. And the government has outsourced its responsibility in relation to how the reform will take place to a, an organisation called the Futures Tourism Task Force, which um, is made up of one member of the Queensland Department of Fisheries, two environmental department people, two finance people within the government, and an independent chair who just happens to have worked for WWF for the last 12 years. So we're, we're hopeful that um, the government will see the light of the day and treat fishermen with fair and equitable approach and also with dignity so they can exit. That's the best we can hope for. Uh, we've engaged a legal firm to help represent those fishermen who are, who are keen to fight as hard as they have to to get that reform process happening because we are talking about people's lives here. So uh, we're looking forward to sitting down with the government and negotiating a just and proper compensation package, for want of a better word, I'd prefer to call it um, consideration for the forced take of their property. Um, yeah, so we we'll wait and see. If I've read both of you correctly, you've both talked about how you feel as though the current situation is unfair, where you're dealing with government departments and authorities, and those departments are listening to people who are looking after the environment. They have the environment's best interests at heart. You're both saying you're championing for food security or the rights of the commercial fishers who are getting the food for, for the people who then go to the supermarkets. But in reflection, what's your approach been like when you have been championing? Dave, I can go to you first because you've gone through a situation where you feel like you've maybe lost the battle. Did you do enough? That's a hard question, Richard, because I've only been in this role for 11 months, so probably um, I've tried to do as much as I can within that 11 months. But having said that, we are competing against ENGOs who are juggernauts. Um, WWF, for example, is a multinational organisation. It is the organisation which the World Heritage Committee um, has basically been formed from. It is the organisation that the Marine Stewardship Council is formed from. It is an organisation as, as well as with the Australian Marine Conservation Society that relies on finding issues to raise money to keep feeding the hungry beast and they are experts at it. So we just are so worried that once we get this issue out of the way they'll just find another issue and another issue and another issue and it'll be a death by a thousand cuts. So in relation to the recent announcements of the net free zones in the Gulf of Carpentaria we went out really hard within the media. We now believe that there's a Mark II of this map that um, has a reduced number of net-free zones. So we think we've had some success there. We've um, done a lot in social media in recent times trying to change public perception in our social licence, um, which I think has got a lot of traction. But how you compete against these international juggernaut ENGOs is really, really hard. What are your thoughts, Daryl? Because I know some people who are involved in the commercial fishing industry are a little bit surprised by how aggressive WAFIC is. They're very much on the front foot in, in pointing out where they feel as though the DBCA has been at fault. 
Yeah, oh, they, they have been. And look, we've exhausted every other reasonable means to be able to interact with government over this. Believe me, I've worked in and around government my entire life. But it got to the point that we realised that everything we were doing, we were, we were being treated like fools. We could see that, the, um, that there were predetermined decisions in place. We could see we were staring down the barrel of forced dispossession. We had people who were in, in terrible sort of emotional states along our coast who, who didn't have a voice, and we had to give them a voice. And, and we could see that really government wasn't listening, it wasn't caring, unless they were listening to the environmental groups like Pew Group. Pew Group comes from the US. It's funded by oil billionaires. They're trying to get a 30% lock-up on uh, into sanctuary zones on the south coast, where back in the US they've only got 3%. You know, and they don't give a damn about socioeconomics, and so therefore we just didn't feel like we were getting a fair go. And yes, we're out in the front foot, all, all right, and I can assure you, we've had a bloody gut for. We're going to fight this all the way. We haven't given up. We, we're not talking about compensation. We're talking about trying to get a fair outcome. And as an example, you can hear the environment minister say, oh, it's only 30% gone, you've still got 70% of water left. The trouble is they've targeted, using our confidential information, they've targeted the most productive areas, and if you take 25 or 30% of the waters out that they want to, that'll be over 50% of the production, that'll be over 80% impact on margins, so the viability of fishing will go altogether. So we'll shut fishing down altogether. You'll have no resident commercial fishermen on operating out of the south coast as a result of what's been proposed at the moment. You touched on just how some of the fishing operators are coping at the moment. I mean, you're in a position of uncertainty. Yeah. What impact is it having on them? Oh, it's terrible. How would you be if you've got a family? You could be a second or third generation fisherman. You know, some people are saying, my grandfather was a fisherman and father was a fisherman and now within my life I'm going to lose everything that they worked for and stood for. So it's an intergenerational thing. It's part of their DNA. They, they take their role of providing fresh fish to the community very seriously and they feel like they're doing the community a service and to sort of be in this position where they, they're not being valued properly, I think that hits them really hard. They're going to the bank manager and he says, well, there's all this uncertainty from the marine park, we can't lend you more funds. You don't know whether you're going to book your kids into school or not next year. I mean, these are all the impacts that are going on these people. And some of these people too are volunteers within their local communities. They're sporting coaches, the volunteer ambulance drivers and, you know, there's... there's I don't think anybody quite appreciates the importance of commercial fishing to the heart and soul of these coastal communities. If I'm not involved in commercial fishing and I don't know anyone who is, why should I care? As Dave said before, it's the lowest carbon footprint of, of any protein you want to eat. That's like one seventeenth of the nearest agricultural protein. So if you want to talk about the pathway to net zero... Commercial fishing is part of that. We are a renewable industry if we operate sustainably, and we do. The WA jurisdiction has over 90% of its fisheries are, reg are internationally accredited as, as sustainable under Marine Stewardship Council. That's the highest rate in the world. We have fishery scientists who really monitor our fisheries so tightly to make sure that it's sustainable. We don't need to lose this. We've already got pristine waters. Our guys are the defenders of the marine estate. If we don't have clean water and healthy habitats and reefs and sustainable fishing populations, we don't have a future. So we've got to be part of that.
But as a consumer who just goes to the supermarket, that's my interaction with fish. What impact is it going to have on me? Oh, you'll still be able to get fish. You'll be able to get imported fish, and that's what you can get at the moment. So 70% of the, of the consumption of fish in Western Australia at the moment is imported from often illegal or unethical sources. It doesn't taste too good. It's frozen. And some of that, by the way, has probably been illegally caught out of our marine parks in, in, in the Kimberley waters. So that's what we've got at the moment. We produce 30% locally, and that's as much as what we can do under all the limitations we have now. So if we lose more area, like on the south coast, are proposing to take another 3,000 square kilometres of water, it makes it harder for us to be able to supply fish. What's going to happen soon is, it, well, it's already happening, the prices are starting to go through the roof. Not because we're charging anymore, because the demand is, is so high from restaurants and consumers wanting to get unique WA species and tourists coming to WA or even people travelling within WA. Like they go to Margaret River, they want to try a local wine. They go to Westminster, they like to try some local fish. You won't be able to in the future. That's Daryl Hockey there, CEO of the WA Fishing Industry Council. And before him, you heard from David Bobberman, the Executive Officer of the Queensland Seafood Industry Association. They were talking, rather, to Richard Hudson. What are your thoughts on the way the state government is handling the formation of these marine parks in Western Australia? Send us a text if you've got some thoughts. The number is 0448 922604. You might be happy that the state government's looking at future fish stocks or maybe you're upset that it could result in fish prices going up even higher. If you've got some thoughts, I'd love to hear them. The number again, 0448 922604. It's just gone 22 minutes past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. Well, how often do you hear about a state government construction project finishing ahead of schedule? Not all that often, is it? But hold on to your hats because construction of the new Fitzroy River Bridge is set to be finished six months earlier than expected. Main Roads says while they don't have an exact completion date, they will continue to keep the local community and the freight industry updated on the progress and details of opening to traffic. Minister for Transport, Rita Safiotti, explains the reasons behind the earlier than expected finish date. First of all, we went through a a very short and tender process, but we identified that to be, because it was a natural disaster, you're able to truncate your normal uh, purchasing um, uh, procedures. And also, um, because it was a defined project, we were able to do it in such a way. We're confident that we'll be in a position very soon to run vehicles over the bridge under very strict traffic management. So that's the worst case scenario, is that with strict traffic management that you would be able to run some vehicles across the bridge. The best case scenario is by Christmas is that we have it pretty much fully operating. So there's a number of contingencies in place. As we said, because we there was a bit of rain last week, but because uh, that many, most of the structural work is now complete. We're very confident about going forward. In relation to the low-level crossing, that will remain until uh, we don't need it. Um, we 100% don't need it. Oh, I think it's really welcome news to the freight industry, to the tourism industry and to locals. Um, this was a massive disconnection. And to be honest, I've been kept up to date. And seeing that bridge coming on so early, so quickly. So in particular, I mean, I've been trying to be very conservative in my forecasts. I don't like jinxing things. I'm even still nervous, but I don't like jinxing things. But, you know, we just kept seeing 
they, their milestones being hit, they were working so hard. An incremental launch basically saw it creep over the river, but at a pretty fast pace. And now that it's over the river, now it's the deck to be poured, the concrete to be finished, the approaches to be laid, and then the rails to be done. And they were pretty much there. But I think it's going to be a huge sigh of relief for everyone in the Kimberley, freight operators, tourism operators, and of course, the local community. That's Minister for Transport, Rita Safiotti there. Well, Russell Cook runs Red Range Stock Supplements in the East Kimberley. He's had a tough year since the loss of the bridge in January, but he says this announcement brings plenty of hope. Uh, it's fantastic news. Um, obviously, they've still got a long way to go to actually getting it suitable for road trains, but a full credit to to the government for for um, pulling a rabbit out of a hat and, um, you know, they've, they've had great people on the on the job. Rob Cossart's been in constant, constant contact with us all and managing that area and uh, full credit to the contractors as well. They've obviously, yeah, they know their job and they've done it well. So when uh, when we see first lot of road trains going across there, we'll, we'll uh, all be jumping for joy and, yeah, well done to all involved. What kind of relief will it be for your business knowing that those road trains will be able to get across that bridge and you won't have to stop sending stuff from the west to the east and vice versa over the wet season? Yeah, it's, it's huge. We've, we've got customers that are just the other side of the Fitzroy to get to them and you've got to do about 9,000 k's to go around back to them. So it's, I'm not sure exactly about those kilometres, but it's a, you know, it's an extreme to get there. So it's... Yeah, it's huge and it means that we don't have to stockpile as much commodity as we thought to get through the through the wet for the guys on the east side. So it's it's huge and yeah, once again, well done to the contractors and the government. That's Russell Cook there from Red Range Stock Supplements speaking with Alice Marshall. Now shortly we'll be taking a look at news headlines and also the weather for your Thursday lunchtime. But before we do Milk brewed in a laboratory can't compete with the nutritional benefits of milk produced by a cow. That's the view of Dairy Australia after the announcement that lab brewed milk produced by a company called Eden Brew could be available as early as 2025. Now, you might have heard on yesterday's show, Eden Brew is in partnership with New South Wales-based dairy cooperative Norco. It's raised $25 million from investors, including $6 million from the Victorian government. Here's a little of what Eden Brew CEO Jim Fader had to say about the taste and the environmental footprint of their precision fermented milk. We believe that our final products will be so close that it'll be very difficult to discern any difference. Uh, I think energy could be as much as 50% of the cost of running the fermentation plant, uh, so renewable energy is really important. Uh, in terms of water, we, we will use a fraction of the water that is um, required within the dairy industry and within um, plant-based milks. Um, and uh, we, at this point in time, forecast to be under 10 litres of water for one litre of milk produced. Well, Melissa Cameron is Dairy Australia's Sustainable Dairy Nutrition Manager. She says regardless of what companies like Eden Brewer are up to, dairy remains in a strong position, particularly when it comes to price. These products still have quite a way to go in terms of the technology to develop them as an actual final end product and also regulation from food standards. I think also from a, a you know, to deliver that milk uh, taste, mouthfeel functionality and nutrition that uh, cow's milk has is, is going to be quite a sort of a feat as well. Uh, Eden Brew will create some 
proteins and then to add that to become a beverage, they're going to have to add carbohydrates, fats, vitamins and minerals to get something that looks and tastes um, like milk. Cost will also be a, a bit of a thing. So I, I think at the moment it will be quite a way off um, and it's really up to consumer perception. We know that milk, cheese and yogurt, is really well loved and consumed by Australians. So um, at this stage we, uh, we see that consumers will continue to consume dairy products as, as they are. Are there concerns around the nutritional profile of some of these synthesised food products? It's really hard to know because they haven't delivered a, a final product yet. So as I said, they can replicate uh, a few key proteins. There's a lot more proteins that occur in natural milk and then they need to add um, ingredients that will deliver the fat, carbohydrate, vitamins and minerals. So it'll be really a, a combined product to get that end product that will meet will look, taste, function like dairy milk. Dairy milk has the natural nutrition in it, so it won't be able to compare on a nutritional and um, perspective, I think, in the end. But it's still a bit of time off to understand what that will look like in the end. What does the future of dairy look like with some of these um, synthetic products? Is there research and development happening on the dairy side to put dairy in a competitive position, or do you feel like dairy is already in a strong position going forwards? Dairy's in an incredibly strong position going forward. It's recommended within the dietary guidelines. It's safe, convenient, affordable. It's well-researched, um, consumed for thousands and thousands of years and has really good evidence around health outcomes. So I, I think dairy will maintain a really strong position, particularly around that affordability that we're seeing at the moment. Potentially, these synthetic products will take quite a time to actually come down in price because of the infrastructure and the requirements needed to invest in delivering an end product. Eden Brew has said that they use around 10 litres of water to produce a litre of their precision fermented milk. They say that energy is really going to be their, their greatest input. I would agree. So there's, there's been some research, there's a couple of papers coming out that are comparing the water footprint of milk versus this sort of cellular agriculture and defining that the, the environmental footprints are pretty similar from that sort of greenhouse gas emissions because of the electricity and power used for the synthetic products versus, you know, from, from the cow. So there's not a lot of difference in that end product at, at this stage um, between the, the products. A lot of stainless steel and a lot of energy required and a lot of cleaning and water used. From your perspective, do the environmental credentials of cow-produced milk and synthetic milk match up, essentially? At the moment, they're on a bit of a par, yes. And I'm sure they'll be working hard to improve their sustainability credentials, just as the dairy industry is. We have an Australian uh, dairy sustainability framework. We've got significant investment and commitments to reducing all of our environmental footprint over time. I'm sure that they'll be working the same as well. That's Dairy Australia Sustainable Dairy Nutrition Manager, Melissa Cameron, speaking with Fiona Broom. Well, it has gone 29 minutes to one, so time to hit the newsroom where Jonathan Hopper is in the house, he's waiting, he's ready. What have you got for us, Jonathan? Good afternoon, Tara. The state government has conceded a youth detention block at the maximum security. Casuarina Prison isn't an ideal solution, following the attempted suicide of a 16-year-old boy. The teenager remains in critical condition at Sir Charles Gardner Hospital after being discovered unresponsive in his cell in Unit 18 early this morning. Members of his family 
family have been notified while support is being provided to prison staff who revived the teen. WA police say they haven't been able to access the scene of a fatal crash in the Pilbara, but investigations into the incident have not stopped. The fiery collision on the Great Northern Highway happened on Tuesday afternoon involving a car and a road train carrying 25 tonnes of ammonium nitrate. Police say at least three people have died. And Australia cricket captain Pat Cummins says the team has no intention of resting its fast bowlers at the men's one-day World Cup. The Australians will play nine matches at the tournament, excluding finals over a five-week period. Thanks, Tara. Thank you so much. Jonathan and Jonathan will be back in about 28 minutes time, 27 and a half by my calculations. Uh, on the country out today, we have been asking for your views about the formation of the South Coast Marine Park. We've been asking for texts on 0448922604. Wendy in Albany has sent us a text saying that professional fishermen have had years of warnings and communication over the introduction of marine parks to protect fish stocks. Current measures that have been taken have not seen fish stocks recover. Recreational fishers have also contributed heavily to the decline of fishing stocks and combined with the warning, warming rather of oceans, our marine life is in serious danger and we all have to do everything possible to save what is left. So that was Albany, uh, Wendy rather, in Albany. Uh, also had a text in from Anthony saying, how would any farmer like to have the government tell them they might take their farm, but they're still working out how much of it and then have to sit and wait for years to see if they'll have a business. If Environment Minister Rhys Whitby was employed in private enterprise, he'd be sacked for incompetence. Thanks for your text, Anthony. If you have a say on this, uh, you're welcome to, or a thought on this, you're welcome to have your say. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four is our text number. Right now, though, time to head to the Bureau of Meteorology. Catherine Shelfout is the duty forecaster ready for us. Catherine, uh, let's start in the north of the state. What's going on? Good afternoon, Tara. Um, I feel like I could almost press replay on what I talked about yesterday (laughs) because not much has changed, but I'll try and pat it out a bit, see how we go. Um, Look, it's pretty clear across most of the state at the moment. Uh, In the north, there's a little bit of cloud uh, just off the, well, on top of the north Kimberley coast. Uh, Probably most significant up through the Kimberley and Pilbara at the moment is just that it's very hot. Temperatures sitting in the high 30s and low 40s um, throughout most parts. Um, fairly light to moderate easterly winds up there. There's just a weak trough um, sitting near the coastline and probably most significant for them is that there's still a number of fires burning uh, through the West Kimberley. So uh, yesterday afternoon on the satellite imagery, we could see a lot of smoke across the Kimberley uh, and the North Interior as well. So um, no particular changes up there other than they'll get a bit of a southeasterly surge moving through the Pilbara and Kimberley, the Southern Kimberley on Friday and that will push a little further north into the remaining parts of the Kimberley on Saturday. Uh, but that's pretty much it for up there. Rightio. Um, <laughs> down my neck of the woods, Esperance, I'm having a look out here. Uh, it was very, uh, I suppose, cloudy, glib. Yes. Um, look, the sun is breaking through or attempting to at the moment, but what can we expect over the next few days? 
Yeah, for the for well for central parts of the state, just briefly, um, there's a few thunderstorms just through the Gascoyne, which are easing off now. There's a bit of cloud through the Gascoyne, and the only other remaining cloud is along the south coast where you are. So only going for tops of 19 in Albany and Esperance today, um, but everywhere in the south is going to see temperatures increasing over the next four days. So uh, we have a ridge that's lying along the south coast, and it's really just going to very slowly extend further along uh, the south coast over the coming four or five days or so. Um, a trough that's sitting near the west coast at the moment will deepen. So pretty much for the you know, coming four days, we'll see easterly winds um, across the southern half and they'll only um, sort of turn northeasterly come Monday and that will be the hottest day near the west coast. So um, this morning we had some pretty uh, fresh and gusty winds through central parts of the state, uh, through the central west and over the Perth hills and that will be similar again tomorrow. And then we'll see those winds ease a little bit. I mean, we'll still get some uh, fairly fresh sort of uh, morning winds but not as strong perhaps as today. Uh, each afternoon it looks like we're seeing a bit of a southeasterly sea breeze pushing up uh, along the south coast through the Eucla, through the Esperance region and pushing inland. Um, so like temperatures today, as I said, Albany and Esperance 19, but you'll see temperatures by Monday increasing to 29 in Albany and 32 uh, in Esperance on Tuesday. Ooh. Similarly, yeah, <laughs> significant change Um Geraldton, for example, 32 today up to 37 by Monday. Uh, Northam, 28 today up to 39 by Tuesday. So, yeah, just that um, slow warming trend. And then on Monday, we'll see that trough uh, start to move inland. So, unfortunately, it doesn't... Well, I shouldn't say unfortunately. I'm not sure quite what the farmers are after this time of the year, but um, there's just a really weak cold front. There's not going to be any significant rainfall. Uh, just a new ridge comes in, so that's why we get the little bit of a change in wind direction, but uh, no significant precipitation for the foreseeable future. Rightio. Sounds like I also need to um, work out the studio air conditioning for the coming days uh, as well. Catherine, any warnings about... Yes, we just have a strong wind warning that's uh, down the west coast from the northwest Cape uh, down to the Lancelin coast. All right. Thank you so much for keeping us up to date. Thank you. That's Catherine Shelf out there from the Bureau of Meteorology. And in the last 24 hours, no rain was recorded anywhere in WA. This is the Country Hour with Tara DeLandground on ABC Local Radio WA. Well, despite the uh, grey, little bit of blue uh, peeking through, weather outside the window here in Esperance, harvest is underway in the state southeast. Deliveries have started to roll in to grain handler CBH and there have been a few pleasant surprises in terms of yield and quality. Ian Mickle is Esperance Shire President for, I think, another week. He's farmed in the region for around five decades. I caught up with him a short time ago to get his thoughts on harvest 2023 getting off and rolling. Yeah, it's, it's certainly, uh, I understand there's a few loads have come in and uh, some of those uh, uh, crops are ready to harvest, so farmers are into it. It's about getting the money in the bin, isn't it? <laughs> it's um, it's an interesting time of year. This year we've we've sort of seen crops as you drive along, I suppose the, the highways, South Coast Highway in, in particular, crops have only just been reseeded, so they're only just coming up and, as you say, others are being delivered. Yes, well, I mean... In the uh, interior uh, sector of our shire, they had a, probably a little bit of a slow start, but they got going and got it in within their normal seeding periods. But below the uh, Fisheries Road and the South Coast Highway, been a very wet year, and uh, and so a lot of those farmers um, had to go back and reseed, as you said, 
and uh, oh, they, their crops could be quite good because there was sort of inundation uh, and they seeded after it, but a lot of the crops that went in uh, before that, that heavy rain has been knocked around pretty badly. So I anticipate the harvest will drag out and uh, we can only hope that everybody gets a good yield at the end of the day. Now, Ian, you've got uh, only a couple of days left in, in your role as a Shire President, but it does mean that you talk to a lot of people around the district. How are farmers faring? Because, as you say, it's been quite a mixed bag this year for farmers in the Esperance region. Yes, the feedback that I get, it's, um, it's reasonably uh, um, good in the medium part of our Shire. had been a bit dry in the northern parts, and particularly... Out in the Cascade area, they got a late start. Uh, but the rest of them, I think everybody's reasonably happy at the present time. And uh, and we can uh, just hope that the yields and the qualities are good and uh, you know, the prices are, are good to go with it. For you, for your family farming sort of to the east of town in the Beaumont Conding Up region, how, how are things looking there? You're generous. I say South Baladonia. <laughs> uh, but no, the crops look very good out there I'm, you know, for what we expect. And uh, I think Lyndon's very happy with his cropping program. And it looks pretty good for me driving down the laneway in the, in the Utah. It's uh, pretty satisfactory. Yeah. For you, you know, you, you farmed there for, for so long. And as you say, you know, now transitioning to your son, Lyndon, is it is it good to to see that, that the crops do look so good? I mean, we know so many parts of the state have had, unfortunately, really dry season. But to see how they, they can look in, in that part of the world that you spent so much time in? Tara, good crop always looks good. <laughs> I, I, I've got to say that if it's um, if it's got it up there, it uh, grew early. It got a uh, reasonable fill, and even I always said September was the important rain. But even if you've had good moisture in the months before September, generally they turn out pretty good. I'm a positive person, always saying that I reckon it'll uh, yield pretty well, and uh, and with good prices. Uh, most people will be very happy this year, I think. We know it won't be a record season, but it does look like it's going to be above average for, for many in the Esperance region. What does a good harvest mean for, for a farming community like Esperance? For the Esperance economy, it's an essential. I mean, it is our primary industry as such, and people work to, to make sure that their yields are good. And I think we are privileged to have some very, very talented farmers here. A lot of the younger people, they've really set very high standards uh, over the recent years and uh, they continue to farm the land very, very well. So um, and I might take my hat off to them all the way along. Because Esperance is a relatively new farming area, you would have seen, you know, a lot of new land cleared yourself. Are you are you surprised by, I suppose, in some cases, it's only really second generations taking over the farms now, and, and I suppose what they're able to do? Oh, look, I'm not surprised. I think that it always had a great potential, Esperance area, and uh, these young farmers that have got themselves really switched on with you know, so much technology, I just think that they are making it happen now and it's great credit to them for what they're doing. It is indeed. There's Esperance Farmer and Shire President Ian Mickle there. Uh, speaking not too long ago out uh, of our Esperance studios here where it's a balmy 19 degrees today, um, which is very normal for me. On the text line, I, I when we were talking to Catherine at the Bureau before, I mentioned um, some of the hot weather coming and my need for uh, working out the air conditioning system here. Skippy in Kalgoorlie has sent a text in. 
having a bit of a crack, saying 32 is a cold winter's day in the Kimberley. Uh, well, I don't know. 32 is a little bit warm for, for me here, Skippy, um, on the South Coast. I'm a South Coast girl, born and bred, though I did speak to our reporter in Kununurra, Alice, this morning. And when I was saying it's 19 here in Esperance, she was saying it's 39 in Kununurra today. But a uh, bit too warm for me. I'm a South Coast girl. And um, look, that's what we have been talking about today, the formation of the South Coast Marine Park. If you've got some thoughts, send us a text on 0448 922 Pauline has texted in to say all sorts of things are causing the depletion of fish stocks. Reduced mangroves because developers have been allowed to destroy them. Plastic and chemical pollution from massive floods, washing farmhouse and landfill sites into the sea. Let's look at banning kilometre-long drift nets, stop gas mining in the ocean near fishing areas and restrict recreational fishing that involves environmentally damaging fishing gear and imported disease-carrying bait, prawns, white spot. Look at the big picture, says Pauline. Then the fish might come back. And uh, Pauline says she likes our show. So thank you very much, Pauline, for texting in 0448 922 It's coming up a quarter to one, and we were just talking to Ian Mickle about harvest starting. So let's have a look at some of those crops, shall we? Because in recent times, there's been a lot of talk about renewables, be it solar, wind, hydro, or bioenergy. But what will this growing focus mean for canola demand and pricing? It's a question that's been asked of New Seed's general manager in Australia, Rachel Palumbo, and she thinks it'll be good news for both food, food rather, and fuel sectors. Australia is increasing in importance uh, as an export contributor to the global canola market and there's new opportunities and new uses for the oil coming from our canola. And we see opportunities in human nutrition but also in fuel. So it's really about thinking about food and fuel and the growth opportunities that will come from that. And that's been a big focus today about uh, canola for uh, manufacturing biofuel and that that line that ag's not just about food it's also about fuel and about uh, renewable liquid fuels and uh, canola for biofuel being one of those so so what growth is there at the moment obviously already a lot of Australian canola goes to Europe for for biofuel manufacturing but what uh, growth potential is there with with an increasing focus on on renewable products? Yeah, we're really focused on how plant science can solve global challenges. And one of the solutions that we're working on globally is New Seed Carinata. And New Seed Carinata is a global uh, oil seeds crop that is contract grown between main uh, rotations and doesn't displace a food crop. And it's actually a drop in uh, replacement for fossil use fuels. So we've signed a 10-year offtake agreement with BP for that uh, crop and we're working in Australia to really understand what is the fit of New Seed Carinata in the Australian agricultural system and uh, what new opportunities can we bring to Australian growers and new markets as we really work with the Aussie growers to contribute to the world's uh, transition to renewable fuels. Okay, so carinata, not for for human consumption, not for for oil, for for food, but specifically for biofuel production? Yeah, absolutely. So it um, is a great solution for sustainable aviation fuel. However, the... uh the meal that's produced from carinata can also be uh, used as a feed for uh, animals and so you've also got a sustainable meal production that comes from the grain. 
Karen Arter could be a new name to, to some listeners. How far away is it from being um, commercially grown in Australia? Yeah, great question. So we're commercially growing it at the moment in Argentina and North America. In the 2024 season, we anticipate moving to uh, a small range of commercial trials to really understand more of the fit within the agricultural system. And uh, we're working on exactly where those locations will be. We're also expanding our local Australian R&D program that will be focused on Carinata as well. Obviously, there's a big push to replace uh, combustion engines that use liquid fuel with electric engines, but you still see significant and and long-running demand for, for liquid fuels. Yeah, I think there's hard to abate sectors like aviation that are not going to be able to be electrified anytime soon. So, you know, there is uh, a significant opportunity for Aussie growers to play a role as we look to quench the demand for uh, increasing a demand of feedstock. As I said, a huge amount of Australian canola exported to Europe for uh, biofuel production, but Is there opportunity for for that canola to be kept domestically in Australia and, and turned into fuel here? Yeah, that's a great question and I think it's one that the industry could think about more broadly and collaborate on but uh, there's no reason why in the future there couldn't be more opportunity locally to establish a market. A lot of discussion today as well about using canola not for biofuel production but also as a replacement for for fish oil. Can you talk me through where, where that's at? Yeah, absolutely. So Newseed has had a long-term collaboration with the CSIRO and the GRDC to develop a plant-based omega-3. And globally, demand for omega-3 is outpacing supply. And so we see an opportunity to satisfy that demand with a plant-based omega-3 oil. Okay, so... I guess for the farmers listening, they'd like to know what all of this is going to mean for them, for for future demand for canola, greater demand, greater price. What would you say to them? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. We see future opportunity for the technology to be commercialised in Australia and we've expanded our R&D trials this year. So we're really looking forward to Australian growers being able to access the technology in the not-so-distant future. That's Rachel Palumbo, General Manager of New Seed in Australia, speaking with Angus Verley at a canola breeder event in Horsham yesterday. Ten minutes to one, uh, still on crops. The recent warm, dry weather may not have been welcomed by many West Australian grain farmers, but a small number of hop growers on the south coast are loving it. Now, hop farming's still in its infancy in WA, but demand seems to be booming with the rise in popularity of craft beers. Aaron Alexander grows hops near Albany, and he says his season is shaping up to be his best yet. Very good this season. I mean, the weather's been really nice in spring. Um, I was looking at my weather logs the other day, and I think October last year, the highest temperature we had all month was about 21 degrees, and we've, we've had quite a lot over that already, so... That means the soil will be warming up quicker, the hops will be moving quicker and hopefully we can get them trained and up the coir a lot quicker this season. Yeah, so what difference exactly does warmer weather make to the hop development? Yeah, so basically spring is key growth phase for us. So what we try and target is at the top of our trellis, our five metre trellis, is to hit the top wire around Christmas, summer solstice, and that will give us the greatest yield we can. So what happens if it's a cool, cloudy spring, the hops are kind of are less uh, efficient at growing and what they'll, they'll kind of they'll be behind. So 
if we're not hitting that top buy around Christmas, our yield suffers. So this warm early weather gives us like a chance to get to the on top. So what was the situation last year? I mean, I remember spring being pretty cold, pretty rainy for pretty much the whole time. Yeah, well, pretty much up until Christmas, we didn't really have many consistent sunny days. And what that meant for our hops is the growth was very slow. So really at summer solstice around Christmas last year, we was only probably halfway up our trellis, which was not ideal. So what happened was we peaked at the top of the trellis around mid-jan. But what that meant was our yield was probably at least a third down of what it should have been. But we still had good quality hops, but it was just, yeah, our yield wasn't there. So based on the way that spring has been so far, what are you kind of anticipating for the rest of the season? Yeah, a good season, a good fast growth in spring. We'll probably start, I mean, even, for example, last season, we didn't start irrigating until probably mid to late November because it was so cloudy and overcast. Whereas we'll probably start irrigating in the next couple of weeks here to get some fertiliser in the in the hops. Uh, but yeah, hopefully we can get greater yield this year and have more hops available throughout the whole season for the brewers. Correct me if I'm wrong, this is your fourth year producing hops? Yeah, correct. Yeah, so hops hit maturity around three to four years. So technically last year would have been our mature year, but I think because of the slow season, we didn't really get a true reflection of what our yields can get and what the hops can do. So hopefully this year we can start to see that and we can log that down and then going forward we can anticipate better what our yields will be. And what do you think those yields will look like at maturity? Uh, so typically this we're about an acre so in theory we should be hitting about a ton ton and a half wet so that's fresh but hops at full maturity so if we can get around 75 percent there this year we'd be very happy with that have you ever seen a start to the season this good before when we first moved down it was like this but i didn't really know as much as i do now so and it was very early days so i'd probably say one since i've been doing it and I know what I'm on about. Uh, yeah, for sure, this is the best. And moving forward, what are your plans with, with the hops now that we are going into this maturity phase? Yeah, so we've been tweaking a lot of things over the last few years, and I feel like we kind of know what we're doing now. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there's a potential there to maybe grow. There's definitely the demand there, but but we like we like being a small farm, so I think growth for us will only be kind of small at this stage. So. That's Aaron Alexander from Great Southern Hops speaking there with Sophie Johnson. Sounds like his uh, season is shaping up very nicely with this warm weather the South Coast has been having over the last week or so. Now, shortly we will be heading to Mount Barker. Tracy Kilner's been there uh, having a look at the cattle sale for us. But while we are on stock, about a week ago, you might have heard about some serious bushfires that were burning on the New South Wales far south coast. Two homes were destroyed, 14 other buildings, including sheds and stables, were burnt. And now it's being confirmed 125 head of livestock died in that fire uh, just inland from Barangi. Emergency Management Controller Matt McNaughton says their staff will continue to provide support to farmers and livestock impacted. Yep, so there was 125 head of livestock lost, um, so 60 sheep and 65 cattle. As far as breaking down in hectares of private agricultural land versus uh, bushland and, and national park burnt, I can't give you those exact figures. But, you know, there's extensive uh, damage to farm infrastructure and fencing and there is a few sheds that are burnt as well. Obviously this area has been through a few of these disasters, unfortunately, but... um. 
Do you know what um, I guess some of the feeling among landholders has been when LLS has been going out to help them after this fire? Yeah, look, we've we've had a welcoming response. Our field crews have certainly reported that um, people have been happy to see them and happy that somebody's there to help. Generally, we get in pretty early um, after the, the fires have gone through um, to get those animal assessments done as quick as we can and deal with any welfare issues as, as, as quick as we can. Um, we are limited by being granted access at times because we certainly can't be deploying staff into the fire ground until it's safe to do so, and RFS are the ones that control that and give us the, uh, the, you know, the go-ahead to go and conduct that activity. But, yeah, the, the, the feel is that... Um, we, we get a very welcome response from the landholders and it, it's, it's good for our staff to uh, be able to, uh, you know, liaise with, with those people on the ground and reassure them that we are here to help and, you know, we can help deal with these issues. And, and it's ongoing. It's not just the initial assessment. You know, our, our district vets and our biosecurity staff and field staff will continue to help monitor ongoing potential ongoing health issues that may occur from, you know, bushfire-affected animals. It is still relatively early in the fire season and we've already had a fire like that, the, the one that we're talking about. Um, is LLS, you know, gearing up for a big season on this front? Look, we are preparing uh, as best we can uh, for, you know, for you know, what is being forecast as a, a tough season ahead. But as far as forecasting the season, we sort of leave that up to the RFS, but we are certainly gearing up and, and making sure that our preparedness and everything is in check and, and we're ready to respond um, as part of animal and egg services if, if these events happen. That's Matt McNaughton. He's the Risk and Emergency Management Coordinator for the South East Local Land Services Unit in New South Wales and he was speaking with Victor Petrovich. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. Israel forms a unity government in the wake of the deadly attacks by Hamas. Israeli forces prepare for a ground assault of Gaza. Several New South Wales schools are closed as large parts of the state prepare for extreme bushfire conditions. And NASA shares early results of the largest delivery of asteroid samples from a spacecraft. What will it teach us about life on Earth? Those stories coming up on The World Today. And yes, you will hear The World Today program after the one o'clock news, and that's because the women's one-day cricket game between Australia and the West Indies has been abandoned due to rain. Good old Melbourne weather, hey? Uh, where it's been a little bit sunnier today uh, was Mount Barker, where it was a relatively large cattle sale at Mount Barker this morning. 1,482 was the final tally, I'm told. MLA's reporter Tracy Kilner has been keeping an eye on it. Uh, hi, Tracy, can you run us through those details, please? Numbers doubled for a total yarding of 1,482 cattle, dominated by a quality lineup of yearling steers and heifers. Some additional feeder buyers are active, pushing the prices to 328 cents for the desired weight feeder steers and 264 cents for the lighter weight heifers. Mature cattle gained as well, with heavy steers selling to 260 cents and heavy cows to 158 cents a kilo. The weaner steers sold from 2.98 to 3.42 cents, while the heifers made from 2.16 to 2.58 cents. Heavier weight yearling steers sold from 222 to 302 cents, and the lighter weights made up to 3.28 cents a kilo. Yearling heifers gained, returning from 200 to 2.64 cents a kilo. Grown steers returned 184 to 260 cents, and the grown heifers sold from 170 to 214 cents, up 30 cents on quality. Heavy cows are up 5 cents, selling from 124 to 158, averaging 140 cents, and the heavy bulls sold to 150 cents a kilo. 
This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you very much, Tracy. And uh, we will, of course, have a wool report tomorrow being a Friday. Thanks so much for your company today and for your texts as well. Uh, still getting a few through uh, when it comes to fishing. Uh, for example, this one saying, why do these fishing representative bodies always have to clash with NGOs like WWF instead of using the massive R&D spend in their favour? Dara Hockey sounds like an over-informed pirate who will fight until the last fish is caught and sold for over $7,000 a kilo. Always love getting your texts through. Thanks so much, your company. Time now for news. It is one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.